This episode of Sustainability Solved is brought to you in association with Business Declares, bringing business leaders together to show support for action on climate and nature. Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved, the sustainable business podcast. I'm Will Richardson, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Green Element Group incorporating green element, compare footprint, and of course, sustainability solved. We've been empowering organisations to manage their environmental impacts for a just and sustainable world since 2004. This episode is all about music. Like every industry, the music business needs to become more sustainable. But where does the power lie? And who's responsible for leading the change? Is it the global stars with millions of fans? or us, the consumers who've stopped buying records and turning to streaming platforms that squeeze the industry's profit margins. Don't get me started on Spotify. To help us unpick this, we're very lucky to have with us Lewis Jameson, co-founder of Music Declares Emergency, otherwise known as MDE, and of course, Hannah Cox, who wrote the More Than Music Reports on sustainability at music festivals, and is the founder of Better Not Stop, Brilliant, brilliant company name, Hannah. I love it. A sustainability impact agency. Welcome, both of you. So, Lewis, you formed Music Declares Emergency with Savage's drummer, Faye Milton. What was the motivation behind it? Well, it wasn't just Faye Milton, uh, to give everyone their credit. Okay. There was about 14 of us, I think, in the initial phase that encompassed people who ran record labels, uh, artists, DJs, people who worked within the industry, across the industry. It was a cross-industry kind of idea. The impetus behind it was, well, twofold, really. One was that all the people in the room had in various ways been scratching their head and wondering why music hadn't engaged with the climate issue in the way that it had engaged with other social issues historically, right back to, you know, kind of Elvis terrorising American parents in in the early 50s, you know, that kind of idea of of music being at the spear point of cultural change alongside other creative industries. So that that was one of the reasons. Uh, And then the spark maybe that brought us together was, if I'm absolutely honest, Extinction Rebellion's activities in late 2018 and, and early 2019 in London in particular, which kind of go a focal point to, to the idea that you could do something demonstrative around climate and actually affect the media agenda and, and affect the public perception of it. So that was the kind of genesis of it. And when we did get into the room, we were very aware of, of the reasons why. The, the answer to our first question, you know, why isn't music engaging with us? We kind of knew that anyway. So then it was a question of, of starting to answer those questions. You know, the charge for the artist side of the equation is, is always the hypocrisy thing. Artists are very prominent, very easy to shoot at, uh, and beloved targets of certain elements of the media for whatever they do, but particularly around climate, given there's two agendas there going on. There's the we don't like your cultural kind of stance agenda and the we don't like the climate agenda. So, you know, you're on, you're on bad ground both ways as an artist. And then for the industry, the biggest issue is that in global terms and in, in sheer kind of numbers terms, the music industry is is a bit player in the how bad are you in terms of the climate crisis, but it's still a player. And because of the way it interacts with everybody's everyday lives, it's probably more visibly a player. So the things it does that are bad are more visible to the public than, say, even some of the worst, you know, your mining companies and so forth. Nobody consumes products directly from a mining company and understands that they come from a mining company, whereas everybody does buy records or, or streams, as you say, or has merchandise or goes to gigs. So mm. that was the genesis of it anyway. Yeah. Okay. And so were you aiming to get musicians to use their high profile to call for change? Or were you trying to change the music industry from the inside? Both, is <laughs> the short answer. We felt that we couldn't engage that incredible power and connection artists have with their fan bases without addressing the industry that they come from. It's a common misconception that artists have complete control over their careers. They don't. The smaller artists don't because they need the enabling kind of people around them, managers, labels, etc. They, you know, they need that structure to develop. And the biggest artists don't because their structure is so big that they couldn't possibly handle it all. So they have to, you know, kind of cede power and, and so forth to third parties. 
But nonetheless, they're always the target when things go wrong. So we felt that if we were to ask artists to go in that very precarious position and, and, and be spokespeople for the planet, then we had to make sure that they were coming from an industry that could at least say, we're getting better. So that when those charges came, the artist could say, well, I'm working with my promoter, my agent, my record company, my publisher, mm. whoever, my merchandise company, to do this better. Mm. Okay. Okay. And Hannah, can you tell us more about the more the music reports? What did you hope it would do and what inspired you to put it together? Well, I was approached by Kendall Calling Music Festival, which is based up in the Lake District, which is around 25,000 people to support them on their sustainability policy and specifically around waste and how they can really engage their audience in supporting their sustainability efforts. And it was the first approach we'd had as an agency by a music festival. And if anything, it was more of my interest in thinking, okay, is this just something these festival promoters care about? Or is this a systemic issue in the industry where it's actually festivals actually want to do good but they're just struggling in how to do good now for full transparency in my 20s I worked in the music industry various roles festival management managed a band worked in music marketing and actually left that industry because I wanted something with a bit more what I felt purpose that was going to change the world for the better started my sustainable impact agency and then a few years later kind of went in this full circle moment of the music industry coming to me. <laughs> so the research was to see what had been done already. And there was loads of amazing work that had been done already by the Association of Independent Festivals and by Vision 2025 and by Music Declares. And just seeing like, how can we bring this all together as well as seeing what the actual landscape looks like in the UK and what the challenges are for music festivals. I specifically looked at it from the viewpoint of, you know, the festival organisers and the promoters. They've got so many challenges putting on an event. And often it's not that they don't want to do good. It's they're not quite sure where they can do the biggest amount of good. So mm -hmm. the More Than Music report was an opportunity for us to look at the industry as a whole, see where we were, look at who was doing good stuff and sharing that with, with other people. And also looking at it from a realistic point of view, which is music festivals and the industry is a commercial enterprise. So when we're coming up with ideas for festivals, we want to try and come up with ideas that make sense for them to be sustainable and impactful and not affect their bottom line, which I think sometimes is one of the challenges we get as an agency, which is we can't afford to be sustainable. And we wanted to show the argument of actually there is a real commercial reason and an, an important reason that you need to get involved in this. And what came out of the report, which I found really interesting, is the audience really want to do good stuff. And actually, music generally, in my opinion, which is why I got involved in it, is such an emotional, visceral feeling. We all know that feeling when you listen to your favourite band, when you're at a gig, when you're having that experience. You can't put it into words how brilliant music can make you feel. It's got so much power. So for the music industry to get involved in something as important as the climate emergency is a really, really mm. powerful way for us to connect as human beings. And at music festivals in particular, we find that that's a space where people are more open to new things, more open to new ideas, more open to listening to new things or exploring new things. And for, for me, that was kind of like a really interesting place to be because if you've got an audience of people who are connected through their love of music, their love of experience, and you can speak to them about how they can get involved in really exciting and interesting topics that are important for us as mm. a species, generally, you know, without going too over the top about it, I was like, there's something in this audience behaviour change that we could really actually incite a lot of positive uh, impact. Yeah. And what what were the key takeaways that you gave Kendall Calling? Brilliant festival. It's a brilliant festival. Mm. The key takeaways were, which I always say to every business I, I work with, which is we need to make this easy, affordable or cool. Ideally, all three, we need to make it at least two of those things. So we can't be asking the audience to do something that we're not doing as a festival. So we need to be sharing with the audience what you're doing in all different areas of your festival. And we need to be focusing on one or two things in our first year to be talking about with the audience. So for us, it was 
as simple as connecting the audience to the natural environment they're in, the reminder that we are in a beautiful deer park, that for 11 months of the year exists as an incredible nature reserve rewilding, and then for a weekend of Kendall and the lead up and the breakdown, essentially becomes an entire village, becomes an entire town. And how can we connect the audience with the natural environment they're in? And also, how can we show the audience what we're doing? For Kendall this year, we had that as an all-encompassing campaign called Leave Nothing But Memories, which we're continuing into this year as well. And our main touch point last year was Leave Nothing But Memories, as in take your tents home, mm. be respectful of the space that you're in, and think of the natural environment that you're in. And that story will be different also for every festival. Our audiences are different at every music event and the same with every musician. So we talk to everybody differently. But for Kendall in particular, it was the recognition that you are in a natural environment. Please look after it. This is your home. It's nature's home. So please look after it. And Faith in Nature were a key sponsor in helping us put that sustainability through. And their message is, what would nature say? So that was yeah. a really key communication message when we were speaking to the audience last year. Okay. Sounds great. That sounds really, really good. Just tying it all together. Now, Coldplay are making a big splash about this, aren't they? They're talking a lot about it. They're a very high-profile, eco-friendly world tour at the moment, and they've had a lot of press attention, good and bad. My question to both of you, maybe first off, Lewis, how useful has that been for advancing the discussions around sustainability and music, and has it been useful? Absolutely invaluable. Right. I will defend that band to the death, and I'm not a fan. The part that frustrates me about this conversation around Coldplay is at the very outset of this tour, when they announced what they were trying to do, they said, we are going to invest a significant amount of capital in trying out various things that have all been suggested as solutions. Some of them won't work. Some of them will be counterproductive and some of them will work. We don't say we've got the answers. We say we are looking for them. That was the outset of the tour. And then they took flack all the way around the world when all the things they'd said would happen, happened. <laughs> Which to me was emblematic of the problem we have in the climate crisis mm. and the communications issues around it. You know, it was kind of like a microcosm of the wider debate around climate solutions and, and, and the climate emergency. You know, the constant harping about, well, you tried that and it didn't work and you sourced your HVO from the wrong place. And, you know, well, you're partnered with X and X does this and that's bad. It was really frustrating to see, nonetheless, reading through their sustainability report, which I've yet to properly get to grips with because it only landed a few days ago mm. but the very fact that they've published it is something <laughs> it's transparent aside from massive attack and they work with tinder i can't think of anybody else who's done this yet obviously reverb in the united states if anybody's aware of those who are touring consultants have been doing this kind of work for many years so that there are resources like that but for a band of that scale to put their flag in the hill and say, we're going to do this. We're going to take the flag. We know, and to be honest, because it was Coldplay, they probably got extra flag because, you know, they're an easy, you know, it's like kick Coldplay day, isn't it? They're like the U2 of our generation. So anything yeah. they do, they're going to get flag for. But on a, on a very serious note, firstly, they've proved that there are things you can do and that they're scalable. That's really important. Secondly, in investment terms, I firmly believe that a lot of the stuff that they've done that works will become more and more prevalent because it's now proven you can do it. And the basic economics says that over time, that will become more achievable for bands and artists touring at lower levels because economies of scale will come into play. So in a sense, they've set a new precedent, which is just remarkable. And also, obviously, they've used their advocacy power all the way around because they've talked about it all the way around. They've made it a talking point. But as a symbol of what one artist can do, it's remarkable. You could argue they've done more on that tour than some national governments have done in a year. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I mean, and I would echo everything that Lewis has said there. I mean, the work that we did at Kendall, as an example, is... I'm a GRI standard certified consultant, which is a sustainability framework that uses the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Following the work we did with Kendall, where we worked with about 15 key stakeholders across the festival, we produced a 300 page report 
with KPIs, data collection, loads and loads of work. But the headline for everybody was that we got 98% of tents taken home. Now, that was great. And I'm really proud that we did that. But it wouldn't have worked with all the foundational work going on behind the scenes because people would have thrown mud at us too. If you actually look at the facts and the statistics when it comes to music festivals, as an example... 70% of the carbon emissions usually come from the audience travel there. So actually, we could be doing absolutely loads of stuff at the festival. Everything we could possibly be doing, reusable cup, compostable, vegware, vegan food, etc. But if everybody's coming to the festival still in cars, it's not reducing down the carbon emissions in the huge ways that we need to be looking at. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing all the other good stuff. But it means it's all part of a wider Mm. ecosystem and a wider value chain. And it's looking at what we can do when we can do it with what we have. And I think what Coldplay have shown us is that it's actually fine not to be perfect, but to be doing nothing is not fine. So therefore, they've, as Lewis said, have put their neck out. I've looked at the report. Like Lewis, you know, it's definitely worth a second and a third read. And it's very easy, even as a sustainability consultant, to say, oh, well, they haven't mentioned like the catering on the tour, which would have made a big difference. And But the point is, it's all about behaviour change. And it's about if someone like Coldplay is looking at this, other artists are going to start thinking, well, maybe we need to be looking at this as well, because there's this expectation of us as in our roles to be showing not just who we are as a band but where our values lie as a band and that's what Coldplay have done there they've put very clearly these are our values as a band and we're actually prepared for you to make fun of us or say we're not doing it properly but at least we're doing something here and it kind of challenges and pushes back to other people in the industry of well what are you doing and how are you getting involved in this because we can all be part of the solution but we always say if you're not part of the solution you are the problem and at least Coldplay are actually trying to be part of the solution here yeah if I could just come back on that there are other artists doing work Billy Eilish bringing the horizon oh there's loads we've worked with quite a lot of them What's interesting about the Coldplay thing for me, it's not so much that it puts the pressure on the artists, because I think there's a lot of artists, 1975, a lot of big touring artists want to do this stuff and are trying to do it. What the Coldplay thing does for me is it puts the pressure on the industry. And that's the interesting thing for me, because whilst there are definitely progressive minds in the live industry in particular, I will caught being unpopular in the place I work and say there aren't enough and it's not quick enough. Mm. Yeah. So somebody like Coldplay doing that puts it back on the agenda, puts it front and centre. So the next time somebody says, well, it's difficult when you've got a stadium gig, you can go, well, Coldplay did it. Mm. So it's really powerful in that sense as well. It breaks the, the convention, you know. That leads me on to my next question. I was um, out for dinner with a client the other day who works in the events industry, and he was talking about the fact there's murmurations at the moment and talking about that you may find bands will tour around the world but go to geographical locations. So they may go to, say, Germany for Europe. They may go to, I don't know, St. Louis for America, etc. You will have stadiums, so maybe Manchester, maybe London, all these places in the UK, and you'll go to that stadium to watch the concert, but the concert won't be performed live in that particular stadium. So you get the live feel. Have you any thoughts on that? Have you heard anything like that? So kind of national theatre, cinema kind of expanded. Look, I'll be honest, the, the, the lockdown years were possibly the most depressing years of my life as a live music fan i appreciate i wasn't in the space with people watching it on a screen but watching live music on a screen is for me personally audibly a very different experience i'm not a great fan of the idea that virtual gigs will change the world the problem for me with the climate conversation in terms of music is everything boils down to how much CO2 and there's a, it's a wider conversation. Yeah. And so you have to balance that with all kinds of other things, starting with community. The power of a touring musician to bring together a community. 
of fans is vast and and one of the biggest problems i think we've got in the climate space is i don't think we've got a, a, a scientific problem anymore i think we've got a communications problem we know what's wrong and we know how to solve it we just don't seem to be able to get people to understand understand accept talk about it whatever i mean the research says that it's mostly that people don't want to be like the doom goblin in the corner of their social group going oh but what about the climate crisis so music's really powerful in doing that and live music's an incredibly important part of that because you know we find when we're on site at festivals or when we partner with artists like billy eilish we we can bring people together and they start talking and that's the powerful thing so yeah, you could say, well, they'll talk while they're watching the virtual band on the virtual screen. It's just not the same for me. I, maybe I'm just a little bit old and stuck in my ways, but it just I, I don't think it's a solution. I think it's a market opportunity. I often feel the people that talk about that don't actually seem to be viewing it, in my experience, actually, from the environmental impact point of view. It's more of a, like commercial opportunity point of view. Mm. I mean, my arguments against it would be, going back to carbon emissions, actually finding out how much carbon emissions could be saved there. And the argument, I guess I would see from a fan's point of view, and we know what super fans and huge fans of bands are like. We've seen the Taylor Swift era's tour, you know, 200, 300 pounds a ticket to go see her live. I wonder if you'd end up causing more carbon emissions through people actually travelling to go to the one concert where the people are playing live at. Brilliant. I think, you know, in the same way that ABBA experiences has gained a huge following and there's opportunities there to continue to grow the different ways in which people enjoy and appreciate music. I agree with Lewis. There's nothing like the live experience, which is why touring music festivals etc continue to be such an important cultural thing for us as a as human beings and it goes back to that trying to create a change in people's attitudes and thoughts about the climate emergency and it feels like oh it's just a shortcut to me feels like a shortcut way of like oh well if we just project it on some nice leds live we're solving the issue when it comes to live touring i don't think that's what we're doing because we're avoiding the conversation which is actually there is a climate emergency what can we be doing about that using all our different skills and talents wherever we are whether we're a musician production touring company like how do we make our part of that industry have a more positive impact because the potential is there but it's like Lewis said it's everybody working together and I think there's solutions to problems that we don't have that's not the problem. I think the problem is like how we're putting on things as opposed to that we're putting on things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, logically, if 70% or 80% of some festivals of your, <laughs> of your emissions, if you want to talk about carbon, is the audience traveling, then just having the audience travel, but not the, the artist, you know, by the time you factored in catering and water use and all that at the virtual stadium, you, you're not gaining that much. And the, the danger of that is that you can extrapolate that over multiple arenas. So actually, you might be ending up creating more because you can take one show and show it in 50 places. Well, you've just created 51 shows. So you've yeah. actually created more. You've, not, you've, you've done the opposite. It's the law of unintended consequences. And the other thing with it is there's only certain artists that works for anyway. Mm. So then you start to really think about the, the viability of the live music industry. You know, one of the biggest fears in the music industry is AI. And one of the biggest fears about AI is that it's it's going to replace humans. Uh, you know, there's certainly people looking at, at things like that, that ABBA thing and going, well, that's okay because it's ABBA, but let's not get too carried away here because if we start doing this everywhere. So we, we've got to be careful about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Hannah, in your report, you talk about the hope that festivals might have a positive and not just neutral environmental impact. How do you see that happening? Um, I, I see it happening. So Shambhala Festival has a really good example of the fact that they became a meat and dairy free music festival as a choice over the weekend. You know, it's not like you have to be a vegan to go to the festival, but there will only be vegan options available to you there to eat when you arrive. They actually did some research in that, some data collected from people that come to the festival six months later. 
and found out that a huge proportion of the attendees of the festival had reduced their meat and fish intake down since going to the festival as a result of the communication that had been received at the event. Now, that's not to say that is the solution we all become plant-based. In fact, it's 21 more times more efficient for you to just change your pension into a socially responsible pension than it is to become a vegan. So this is not a vegan, you know, rant on the podcast, but it's a conversation around an experience you have at a music event or a, a music experience or a tour or a gig or whatever can affect your behaviours moving forward. You see that from... 20 years ago when you'd go to gig venues and what alcohol was being sold behind the bar they'd have deals with different music venues so that you only drunk that alcohol when you were there and then that became the alcohol that you drink when you're out we've now seen that expanded into sponsored tours so people sponsoring a tour like red bull for example to encourage people to drink their drink you go to a music festival music festivals are full of sponsored activations and events as a human being to make you kind of change your what you're buying in the future so we've seen that already this isn't like a new thing that you go to an event and there is someone trying to make you like adjust your behavior or buy a thing or drink a thing or eat a thing but there is an opportunity then here for us to use that experience to make a subtle shift in someone thinking about their behavior now that will be different in how you want to do that at events. And I'm sure Lewis will go into all the things that music declares, um, how they talk to people and the audience, musicians, etc. at music festivals. But there is an opportunity there to have a conversation with somebody and open up that conversation with people, all at different levels, depending on the event and the opportunity to shift behaviour. And that's what we need. We need small shifts of behaviour from everybody and also people to feel empowered that they can get involved in this conversation wherever they're at in this journey and I think sometimes that is the worry from bands and you talked about the 1975 and how they got vilified when they released you know their their record around climate change and it's the same it's the worry that if you you don't want to say anything or do anything that opens you up to be challenged and actually I'm trying to sit in that very much in that bank of it's okay to be challenged as long as you don't take offence by the challenge and you can talk mm. honestly and transparently about what you're trying to do yeah. when it comes to change. Yeah. Mm. I think what you said makes a huge amount of sense. And I think the example of Shambhala Festival is it's really pertinent and really because a lot of it is about the communications as you both have been talking about and that is a way that you're communicating through actions by allowing people to understand what it is to do and how to be. Lewis, mm. I just want to touch on funding for a moment. Is it a challenge for organisations like yours that are trying to change things in the music industry? And where's the money coming from? And is there enough of it? Yes, it's a challenge. 3% of all global charitable funding goes towards climate causes. 3%. Yeah? So we're already in a bad space. As a charity, if we wanted to be profitable, we'd be better off saving donkeys, is the honest truth. That's where a lot of the money goes. So, so you know, a, a, as a charitable cause, the climate is in its infancy, arguably. Or just not as popular as cats, dogs, donkeys and, and various other things. The irony, of course, is there will be no cats, dogs or donkeys if we don't solve this, but, you know... That's human brains for you. Is there enough? No. Short answer. No, there's not enough. There is a lot of, if I'm absolutely bluntly honest, and for many years since the foundation of Music Declares, we weren't this explicit, but we've decided we're going to be from now on because reality is reality. The honest truth is there's a lot of people within music who go, we love what you guys do. But then when we ask them to fund it, they go very quiet. <laughs> so there are certainly people who are on the other side of that equation. And, and the first people that should be mentioned at Earth Percent and, and Brian, Eno and Kathy and their brilliant board of trustees who are trying to change that dynamic and encourage the music industry to be proper supporters of not just us, but various climate causes and a coherent response. And they are making headway and there are people that are engaging with that. But again, not enough. So if anybody from the music industry who signs off budgets is listening, I'm talking about you genuinely. <laughs> and I'm not going to mince my words anymore. Good. Uh, we fund ourselves every which way we can. The No Music on a Dead Planet t-shirts, 
have kept us alive at times. Donations from individual artists, donations from supportive and, and ethical companies, everything, anything to keep the lights on. It's a real struggle. And we must spend a fair amount of our capacity just trying to stay alive, which I accept, but it's frustrating because there are other things we could be doing with the time. And when the music industry is posting record profits left, right and centre, it is somewhat galling to look at the profits they're posting and go, we literally are asking you for 0.1% of that or 0.01%. And you're making us literally jump through hoops to try Mm. and get it. Mm. So no, they need to do better. End of story. Yeah, no, fair enough. This episode of Sustainability Solves is brought to you by Business Declares, a not-for-profit business network of over 100 businesses working together for a sustainable future. I'm really pleased to be able to join forces with Business Declares for this podcast, as they are a cause close to my heart, and I already volunteer to them offering advice, attending group meetings, and helping set up and promote events, like the recent Q. I would encourage you to join as a member today so you can get help accelerating your action on net zero and nature targets for your business and grow your network of forward-thinking green business leaders. You can find out more information about upcoming events and how you apply to join at businessdeclares.com. Hannah, up to 80% of festival's carbon footprint is travel and bands can control their own travel but they don't control the infrastructure that get fans to the venue are citizen governments becoming more receptive to discussions about how to improve that no would be the quick answer (laughs) to that question i mean Kind of going back to what Lewis was saying, and also, Lewis, just so you know, we just moved office and we've just done a video of me showing around the office and I'm wearing my No Music on a Dead Planet T-shirt. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, But it's, to be honest, the frustration lies in, like, this responsibility piece that I think, you know, Lewis has kind of talked about there of, like, whose job is it to sort the climate emergency out? Is it the government's job? Is it businesses' job? Is it us as individuals? And it's like, well, it, actually, it's everybody's job. And I think for musicians, it's, you know, yes, OK, they can control their own journey there. They can control the narrative they have with their their audience. But we have to also think about the reality of, like, infrastructures. You know, many music festivals are in the middle of nowhere because they're on you know, at a country hall or on their one of some farmlands farm. And the reality of the government suddenly introducing, you know, good public transport links in that area for one weekend of the year is possibly relatively low. So mm. what we have to do is we have to look more from traffic, like boringly from traffic management and from festivals, their own operations and logistics. Are they making it easy for their audience to travel by coach or by train? Is there shuttle buses, etc.? Which actually all kind of sits within the festival's responsibility and job to make sure it's, it's easier for its audience. When it comes to governments, yes, I mean, it is their responsibility. I spend a huge amount of my time campaigning to my local MP and to the government about various changes in law when it comes to becoming better businesses and helping with the climate emergency. But I think as we've touched on a few times here, it's a multi-pronged, multi-level approach. There is not one complete solution in how we tackle this problem. We're all kind of approaching it from several different ways to try and find the solution, really. The thing I would add, having having had a go at the music industry, which I, which I stand by what I just said, But what Hannah's just said kind of goes to the heart of the the big conversation that's going on in the country at the moment. You know, this this conversation about where do we believe in this idea of a new business revolution? Do we believe in a systemic switch towards a future industrial progress that is based on green tech and based on innovation and and based on decarbonisation? And the music industry is part of that conversation it's a business and it has to turn a profit so you know almost arguing against myself i get why they're not fully on board because there are no tax breaks for it there are no incentives for it 
you know, a, a tour manager friend of mine, uh, a manager friend of mine, you know, who's talking about the next time his band go on tour next year. And he said, if there was a green splitter bus or a green sleeper bus, because of the scale of the band, he knows damn well that if he goes to his hire company, the green one will cost four or five times as much because it's brand new. Yeah. Now, government have levers they can pull that can make mm. that the same price as the dirty old diesel one. So it's not just on the music industry. I mean, the thing we keep coming back to is music industry has financial power as well as advocacy power. I'd like to see them step up. They genuinely want to transition. Great. Make all the, the things you're doing, the carbon audits, change your light bulbs, all that stuff. Great. You know, change your packaging, change your distribution, but use your voice at the table as a massive global business to say, we need this change. We need that change. You know. and, yeah, and going back to that, you know, some of the campaigning we do at Better Not Stop is there's something called the Better Business Act campaign, which is for every registered company in the UK currently has to work in the interest of its shareholders. As a as a legal entity, a business needs to make money for the people that own it. That's what businesses are there for, right? Mu music industry or not. We're saying there should be a change in law that all businesses need to work in the interest of the stakeholders, which means everyone affected by that business, because then businesses have a legal responsibility to be looking at their social and environmental impact, not just about making money. So that's legislation that we're trying to push through from a kind of commercial business perspective. And don't get me wrong, I'm not coming at this, uh, you know, as a profiteering sustain, you know, I, I only work in sustainability to make money because that's definitely not why I work in this industry. But do <laughs> when when I do have conversations it, with music festivals, you know, specifically, I had a good relationship uh, to be transparent with Kendall Corley beforehand. I'd worked with them in various ways pre-event. The reality was they weren't going to pay us money to work on the sustainability of their festival if they couldn't see some other co-benefits to that for their organisation. And they have seen that. In just 12 months, they're getting better sponsorship opportunities for their festival because the sponsors are seeing that the festival cares about what they're doing. There's also the co-benefit of your audience actually having a stronger loyalty and understanding that you as, a, as an organisation are trying to do good for the planet as well, which makes your audience have a, a stronger emotional connection to you. And there's also kind of the boring co-benefits of things around waste management and food waste management and power supply. If we can really organise our power supply at music festivals, it can save a huge amount of money as well. So it's it's the shift, I think, also in the music industry of understanding that actually if you spend money in a different part of your event management planning or logistics planning, you can actually save that money in other areas. And there is a really annoying to me sort of myth that goes around that sustainability is a cost within your business like sustainability is future proofing your organization one for mm. the new future that is coming but sustainability as its dictionary definition is to help your business continue to grow and to future proof it's literally to be sustainable so Sustainability isn't there to make your business not commercially viable. It's actually there to make your business commercially viable in the long term. And actually doing a lot of the work that we do as an agency, festivals are seeing, oh, we're just actually, we're just spending this money at another point in our business journey and it's saving the money long term. And, and going back to what Lewis was saying about a business revolution, well, there's got to be because there is becoming a social revolution at the moment. It's been 100 years since the weekend was invented, literally 90 years ago. And we've now got this social revolution of protests, disruption, just up or extinction rebellion of human beings expecting more from businesses and the government, citizens of the world. So business has got to catch up and do business differently. We haven't talked about B Corps, but that's one of the certifications we help businesses with. But it's a certification that is hard to get. It's changing the framework of your business. But there's data to show that using sustainable frameworks gives you a higher turnover, better retention of your employees, better kind of commercial value, keeps your investment opportunities. So it's all big ticks. It's just people actually catching up in their mm -hmm. education of what sustainability is and how that can work in advantage of your business. Yeah. Yeah, I know some law firms that now won't work with organisations that don't have sustainability within their mm. core 
um, business. And the reason being, and I found this really interesting, was the fact that they saw it as a risk. Mm. So they see those companies and go, actually, we don't want to work with that organization because in 10 years' time, they won't be around. And that is actually a big risk. I mean, this, these are large law firms, so therefore their clients are bit like lots of money is floating around in those kind of deals. And so therefore they can be stung quite quickly. So, I mean, that's a question for the music industry, you know, both in terms of employees, you know, the next generation of employees. It's already starting. You talk to people at, at businesses in the music industry and they say increasingly, the question is not how much you're going to pay me, which is my generation's question. The question is, what's your policy on sustainability? And various other social issues as well. Mm. It's not just sustainability. Mental health is in there. Gender is in there. Race is in there. You're going to see it with artists. You know, I keep saying, is the next Billie Eilish going to sign to a universal? Or is she going to go, well, as somebody who believes in these things, and this is not to criticise Billie Eilish for signing to universal, nor to criticise universal, actually. It's been one of the more progressive, huge companies in the music industry in terms of lots of things. So, you know, no criticism of universal intended there. But the next big artist that's going to look at those labels, not just as, as, as money, because the, the relationship between artists and labels has changed so much with streaming anyway, they're going to look at values as well, because they're going to be thinking personally as values, and also they're going to be thinking audience and values. And that's true of festivals, that's true of, you know, sponsors. We saw it with Neil Young, refused to play under the Barclay card thing. There will be more of that. Mm. So, you know, if you if you want to think about your business progressively and you want to think about the future of your business, especially in an era where the big stars are dying, there's a lot of debate in the music industry about is the era of the big star over, the streaming flattens and we don't have those kind of mega star things going on as much, excepting Taylor Swift, who is, of course, the exception to the rule. There's all those kind of things that play into this as well. So th there's a real sense in the music community in the music industry that this is a moment where all these things are intersecting with each other and there's a real moment of how do we move forward there's a lot of conversation about how does the music industry move forward mm -hmm. and this is part of it or should be part of it maybe i would suggest it should be more a part yeah. of it but then i've got a dog in the front <laughs> and just just to i guess add on that is we're seeing kind of standout instances of people making those changes without being asked so faith in nature put nature in their boardroom they've given nature a seat at the table a legal vote within the decisions that they make as a organization that's pretty groundbreaking but it's also not because also nature is su such a part of what we do as all businesses and then earth percent have done some incredible work which I'm sure Lewis can talk about more but something that really stood out for me was when they made nature a co-writer in music so that musicians can put nature as a co-writer in their music and that money goes to earth percent which is obviously fighting climate action so there's a difference in how we're approaching the problems it's not as a successful musician, I've got some money, so I'm just going to donate money to climate action causes. In fact, would we have been as impressed with Coldplay if the amount of money that they'd spent on their sustainability policy or costs or all of that, they'd just donated to charity or that they've actually tried to systemically change how touring is done and share that information with others? Earth Percent have systemically tried to change how musicians are able to get involved in climate action, not just by donating money, but thinking where in your process, whether that's your merch, your ticket sales or your royalties, can you get involved in climate action? And I think it's exciting to see how people are just approaching it from slightly different angles to almost say, isn't it ridiculous that we're not approaching it at every single level of what we're doing within our organisations? But I'm sure you've got stuff to say on that, Lewis, because you've worked with Earth Percent a lot. I think the Earth Percent model is fascinating. I mean, it, it, the first thing about Earth Percent that, it, that is laudable, but then the people behind it, you would expect this, is that it understands the music industry. So the basic model is based on how royalty payments exist within the industry. So, you know, the first issue, having worked in the industry for 30 years, you always hit when you start talking to music people about money is they go, no, our systems don't really do that. That's the first line kind of rebuff to anything you suggest that's out of the ordinary. I would love to do that, but we're not set up to do it. So what Earth Percent did was work out something that they went, oh, that 
that's how our systems work. So that was that conversation one. But also this idea that, that you know, we're working with, with Earth Percent on a, on a wider iteration of this idea of nature as, as part of the musical process and as something that needs to be recognised or should be recognised by not just artists, but rights holders. In the process, you know, music developed, humans developed music by listening to nature. That's where it came from. In the same way that humans developed art by looking at nature and humans developed fashion by looking at animals and looking at their colourings. You know, everything we have has come from the natural world. There's, there's literally no argument on that. Maybe it's about time that we kind of, given the crisis we're in, found a way for all those things that have been created by nature to help keep it alive. So, yeah, so the Earth Percent thing, you know, what they're doing with that, it, it's really important. It's not just about the income streams. It's about the recognition. You know, one of the biggest problems I think we have in the modern world is, is the disconnection from nature. And helping people to find that through different ways is really important and powerful. And on a personal level, when I go back to Blackpool, where I grew up, and I talk to the people I went to school with, in the initial phase, they're very cynical about the work I do and the work that the people I know do because they, they have a perception of it, which is our problem, frankly, uh, because of the way a lot of it's presented. But when you start to talk to them about the beach and the sea and the rivers and the fact that the fracking site down the road was, was there, but they've closed it down, you realise they do care. It's just the frame is wrong. And so everything we can do within culture to reframe, to find people that can come into their space and say, no, 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 you don't have to like play a drum or glue yourself to a window to care. You can, you can care because I care and I'm just like you. That kind of recognition stuff, that's really important. So Earth Percent and, and ourselves work quite symbiotically because they're good with the, the kind of is the systems will get that side done and we like to think that we're good at doing that. Okay, well, we'll connect to the public and hopefully then you have a, a holistic thing you know, you, you're dealing with all elements of the conversation, which incidentally is how I think the music industry needs to work with this going forward. Yeah, yeah. It, communications seems to be a running theme amongst all of this, how we talk about climate and how we talk about sustainability as a whole, mm. which takes me on to my next question. MD reached a bit of a landmark last year. You made the first plant-based bioplastic vinyl record uh, well, we didn't make it. <laughs> we supported it. There's a company called Evolution Music down in Deal in Kent who are a really inspiring company, actually, and have been doing R&D on this and various other things for some years now, working with, with this kind of plant-based alternative to vinyl, which they've gone through various iterations of. And they, they, I think they're now at a point where they've got one that's as good as vinyl. It's fair to say they're not the only game in town there are various different vinyl versions floating around that that are variable from 90 percent better to 95 percent recycling and using tires and all kinds of different things they're the only one that has no pvc in the chain at all which is probably why we we, we think they're the gold standard but um but yeah it, i love that because so much of the climate conversation is you can't mm. it's all you can't isn't it you can't fly, you can't go on holiday, you can't eat that anymore, you can't buy that anymore, you shouldn't do this, you mustn't do that. Whereas the plant-based vinyl was like a conversation that went, you like records? Yeah, here. Oh, but I'm not supposed to buy vinyl anymore. Ah, but you can buy this <laughs> because this is fine. You know, there, there is no impact from this and it will compost back down. So there's not even like it's going to hang around. So, you know, as an example of how we can still have the things we love, just in a different way. It's a very small example. But I think, you know, as a, a starting point for that better vision of the future, which increasingly interests us at MDE, this idea of a positive future rather than a negative present is how we put it. Um, we feel that, that, that that's the mm. thing that we need in this conversation. We need to motivate people to believe in something again rather than to, to feel that they, they have to withdraw in order to solve the problem. So, yeah, it was a great example of that. And going on to that, bands probably produce more merchandise now than at any other point in history. Yeah, yeah. And Because it, it's an important part of their revenue stream. Mm. But if we're honest, do we need all of that? New T-shirts and stuff. I mean, I, I guess, and this goes back to the emotional, the emotional kind of content and the communications. It's all interlinked, isn't it? So it's not, do we need it? But, to, you know... I, 
maybe we do. Maybe actually that is a part of the communications. Maybe we don't. You know, I do have some sympathy for artists in this conversation because in a sense that that it depends on what level you're talking about artists because clearly there are some artists that are merchandising their way to, to large amounts of money in very bad ways. Firstly, I would say there are better ways to do merchandise. So that's the first line. It's like, you know, come on, you know, source decent quality stuff, make it in a place that's good, ship it in a way that's not awful. Don't overstock to a point where you've got mountains of the stuff left. Our t-shirts are print to order. There is literally no stock. So there is no overstock. And when you finish wearing it, if you send it back to T-Mill on the Isle of Wight, they'll shred it and make it into another t-shirt. You know, the inks are certified, the cotton's grown with rainwater. Mm. It's as circular as a production process can be. And you know, my defense on it is, well, everybody wears clothes. So, you know, wear better clothes, ours are better clothes. You know, there's a point at which you can reduce this conversation to, to, to absurdism of saying, nobody should make anything anymore. Well, that's not really gonna work. But I do take your point on the merch. I mean, the problem is that the economics of the music industry have skewed so badly because of the way that streaming became the dominant force that artists and their teams have had to find other income streams to supplement that. Mm. And merchandise has become a very key part of that new income stream. So that's mm. the, the fundamental problem. It's all very well to say to artists, don't make stuff anymore. But the artists will go, well, I'm not an artist anymore then. I can't do this anymore. So you've got to you've got to have a slightly more nuanced view of it and a slightly wider conversation about value and who takes what and where and how we support artists in order to help them to make these changes. Mm. Yeah, and I think offer solutions. So, I mean, it's, it's the argument of just because you can, should you? Just because you can produce loads of merchandise, should you be producing loads of merchandise? And are there other opportunities for you to make money and commercialise your business? Now, it is a difficult conversation, but I think agreeing with Lewis at this point, on this particular point is, I teach carbon literacy. In fact, I'm in the process of, of accrediting a new course, Carbon Literacy for Musicians, about how they can get involved using case studies like Coldplay, working with Earth Percent on that as well, actually, Lewis, mm. um, in how can we provide free carbon literacy training to musicians so that they can be confident talking about climate action. And something I always teach right at the beginning of the course is... We ask everyone to do their carbon footprint calculator before they turn up and watch a, a documentary and they turn up and they all discuss how many tons they are and how they were surprised by the fact they've got a dog or that they live in a detached house, what their carbon footprint is. And then I ask them if they've ever heard of the term climate shadow and most of them won't have and probably a lot of listeners of this podcast won't have. But it's the concept of that it's not just your consumer actions that affect your carbon footprint it's your actions and the work that you do so I was giving the example of you could be living in New York in a one-bedroom apartment a vegan walk to work every day your carbon footprint's probably going to be quite low you could live in a detached property in the middle of nowhere you drive your diesel car everywhere and you have to fly frequently for work and you love to eat steak for dinner every day now one of these people works lobbying for the oil and gas industry in Washington DC or something but has a really low personal carbon footprint so that's fine and the other one is a climate scientist who actually works in the north pole working on a like melting icebergs and flies around the world to talk about how we need to tackle the climate crisis and working with governments now if you're looking at those two people the actions that they're doing on a daily basis one is creating a higher carbon footprint correct but actually what they're doing to try and turn the tide of the climate crisis is obviously much larger than someone who is pushing against it so rather than vilify every single aspect you can of an artist which is exactly what Coldplay are experiencing at the moment for not doing everything absolutely perfect on their tour is recognizing where your challenges are taking responsibility for the things that you can like your own merch like there is a responsibility there of if you're choosing to make that decision to have an unsustainable income stream that negatively affects the planet it's you just need to be conscious of that and actually quite honest about it so always thinking about climate shadow i think is important in regards to what people feel empowered to do as well in their own kind of daily actions mm. Mm. yeah 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 
I mean, the, the other problem you've got is a market reality with merchandise. So when we launched the No Music on a Dead Planet t-shirts, within two days, if that, there were hundreds of fakes. Hundreds, literally hundreds. And they, to this day, there remain hundreds of fakes. If you type No Music on a Dead Planet t-shirt into Google, you will get Redbubble and loads of other companies that are doing fake t-shirts. So even if an artist doesn't do merch, somebody will. <laughs> So, and it'll just be sold outside the gig rather than inside. So, I mean, it, it seems kind of slightly frustrating to say it, but ultimately you need to come back to a place where you remove the desire for these things. And that's about public perception and that's about hope and it's about dedication. And in a way, a lot of the, the focus on the music industry, I mean, I said somewhat flippantly to somebody recently, but there's a, a kernel of truth in what I'm about to say. I would swap a net zero or a zero carbon music industry for a massively advocacy-based music industry that had real power to change opinions in Washington, London, Berlin, Paris, Beijing, pick the others, Tokyo, you know, that could actually encourage public opinion to force change at governmental level and deal with fossil and deal with agriculture. I'd swap that out. Yeah, well, I think there's not even just a kernel of truth there. It goes back to what Hannah was talking about with the climate shadow, that I would absolutely swap for that. Yeah. Absolutely, categorically, because I think that that will make such a bigger difference. And this is what's so exciting about the music industry. And it goes back to what you were talking about before, about, you know, you've got all these different bands and DJs and so many different types of music that we all listen to. And we're all different people and we're all fed. Mm. And how amazing is it that we are fed a way of seeing it? And it goes back to the Shambhala with, you know, the the food. And it's it's so powerful. Absolutely. I think the music industry is so, so powerful. Yeah. Um, now, we often hear about how restrictive recording contracts are. Now, do artists actually have the power to lead change? Or are all the decisions made by men in suits? Depends on the artist. Is the short yeah. answer to a degree? I mean, recording contract it depends on the company as well. I mean, if you sign to Ninja Tune, then you're you're, you're going to be encouraged to do all the things we've been talking about because that's our Ninja run, and that's certainly true. To be fair, Beggars Group, some of the bigger independents definitely are, are very progressive in this. Domino have been very supportive of us, and, and I know that they're thinking there. And Juno beats the the big dance label, so the, the, there's plenty of examples. Uh, with the, the the big majors, uh, if you're the next hot big thing, not that those come along quite as often as they used to, but if if you are, then you probably you have that sweet spot. I was an A and R years ago, so I know from experience that an artist has a sweet spot where they can pretty much ask for anything within reason, and you will find a way to give it to them because you want them to sign. So if you want to restrict formats, which is something that's a particular bugbear of mine, I can't quite believe we're in an era where cassettes are being offered again. I mean, really, 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 again, you know, it's just a make weight for bundles, for chart positioning. It's really frustrating to see the rebirth of the cassette and the articles talking about it as though it's a great thing. It's more plastic rubbish. Sorry, rant over. (laughs) But you, you could restrict formats. You, you could demand certain packaging. You could demand certain distribution networks. You could, if you're signing away your merch, maybe you could do that as well. You could demand certain merch. There's, there's some windows of opportunity. But to be fair to the labels, you know, if you ask for your albums not to be shrink wrapped, which actually in, in, in terms of impact is small, but it's, it's a great signifier of a problem, the label will go, well, we'd love to do it, but we can't because the production systems that will produce your record are set up to shrink wrap everything. And the only way we can do it is if we get them to take all the shrink wrap off at the end and stick it in the bin. So until the, again, until you change the overall production system, there are certain things that individual recording entities can't do. They just can't do. And I don't think they're the only part of the industry that's got a huge sway with the labels, you know, Agents and managers, in my opinion, for the larger artists, have a much larger sway. Last year at 
Kendall naming no names of any artists at all. We had a campaign with the artist riders. We work with an incredible company that work on all the artist riders. And there was a request that went out, something that I asked to happen, which was, can you ask the artists if they'd be happy to reduce down their rider or have their choices changed to a more sustainable option? And if we reduce down their rider, the money that we save on that rider, we will donate to good causes. And we had a huge amount. We had over 300 artists at Kendall. The huge amount, I don't remember off the top of my head, it's in my report, but um, maybe about 70 to 80% of artists either agreed to making the sustainable swaps or having a reduction down in, the, in their rider because they know there's already leftover waste. Unsurprisingly, the main ones that were unable to do that all had agents. 100% of them had agents. I don't even think the question went to the artist about that. Whereas I feel like if the artists had been asked, they probably would have said yes. Something we're trialling backstage at the event this year is actually an artist well-being area because we see artists on tour especially festival to festival it's a very heavy drinking heavy partying environment there's not actually a lot of space for them to chill out and relax when they arrive backstage at festivals it doesn't involve that kind of party lifestyle so we're creating a well-being space for artists and changing the way in which their rider is given to them and adding those touch points so I think it's going back again to it's yes there's stuff the artists can push for but agents could do a huge amount especially when it comes to touring and festivals because so much of deals ride on what goes on in that contract because you want to make sure whatever the agent has told that artist they're going to get when they arrive on site you as a festival have to provide that for them because otherwise you have the worry of perhaps that agent not bringing that artist to you again and that agent will have several artists on their roster and um, often deals will come from you get that artist because you've got this artist and all that kind of thing. Agents are a, a huge opportunity to, to push and also managers are a huge opportunity to push. Uh, you know, and I would argue out of agents to record labels, those would be the next two kind of industry sectors that actually could make a really, really big difference. I agree. I don't know if Hannah would agree with this, but I think a lot of the things that go on in the music industry that we would like to change collectively don't happen because people have sat down and gone, yes, we want more waste. They happen because that's how it's always been done. So the thing of walking into an artist's dressing room and it being loaded up with sandwiches and, and fruit, fruit everywhere, fruit. Um, I mean, I love fruit, but it's so much of the, this is just wasted. And, and again, you know, in the grand global scheme of the climate emergency, you know, somebody chucking away a few grapes and some pineapple isn't going to make that big a difference. But as a symbolic thing, it all adds up to this idea of waste and it, it weakens your position for change. Just a lot of perception shifting. I mean, the big one for me with agents, well, with festivals actually is exclusions. That frustrates the hell out of me. So to explain that briefly, if your artist is quite high up a, a, a festival bill, their contract will have what's called an exclusion in it. And this will mean that you can't play for a certain time period in a certain radius of that event. And it can be as much as six months and it can be as far as 200 miles. That's the worst I remember hearing. So I've had instances back in the past where it has been more cost effective financially, if you don't take into account the impact cost as well, but you don't on budgets. And that's another conversation to fly an artist into America to play one festival on the West Coast that I shan't name, to then turn around and fly back because the exclusion was so vast that we would have had to have gone either up as far as you can to the Canadian border or back to the West Coast, uh, the East Coast, to play any more shows. And the cost of both of those flights was almost identical to just flying them back. Now, that's insane. And going on to that, I think what Lewis is showing there is just how many different challenges there are in the music. It's called music declares a climate emergency, not musicians, because musicians are just part of a much bigger wheel when it comes to when we talk about the music industry. And if we start to see standout changes in how studios are run or how tours are run, those will start to have a ripple effect Definitely, because the story will start to change then of it being solely the artist's responsibility to instigate change, but actually the responsibility of everyone within what I very boringly call the value chain of an industry, everyone involved in that process. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And last question, quickly, is 
can you spotlight on one individual or organisation that is really pushing change? If I'm going to choose an artist, I'm going to always choose Billie Eilish because I think the shows she did at the O2 last year were a perfect example of how to do it uh, across the board. Everybody was involved, the venue, the agent, the promoter, the artist, the manager. You know, the O2 went vegan for six days. The upshot of that was they didn't put beef burgers back on the menu. It seems little, but, you know... It, yeah, you know, one yeah. artist, one, one, one set of shows, mm. 120,000 people exposed to a really well thought out explanation of how to do it well with two side funded YouTube streamed conversations with the right people, climate, young climate activists in one case, the music industry people in the other case about how we get better. And it's just brilliant. The whole overheated thing, it was perfectly done. And what about you, Hannah? If I was to talk about individuals, obviously the work that Kathy from Earth Percent, she's been an absolute inspiration, how she talks about and how she articulates both the problem, the solution and the challenges. Chris Johnson from Shambhala, who is one of the many people behind Vision 2025, which is a free resource for you to see how you can have more sustainable events. And he's actually working on something called the Green Events Code at the moment, which is to create an industry framework in how we have greener events. So as an individual, I would definitely put him up there too. And the other individual I would say would be Ben Robinson from Blue Dot Festival, who's worked alongside Chris on Vision 2025. He's also worked on Equilibrium, which is a charity which focuses on the audience travel part that we've talked about. And he's came up with the idea of Blue Dot Festival, which is a festival that brings together science and the arts and music and just creates this incredible event that really I found one of the one of the most inspirational festivals to go to, which, uh, you know, caveating, I am now working on this year. Um, but, you know, they they invited they invited Extinction Rebellion along to their festival and, you know, they're mm -hmm. donating money to Earth Percent. So they're showing by doing. And I think anyone that is showing by doing is somebody that is mm -hmm. is a positive in my book. Yeah. Great. Brilliant. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. It's been absolutely insightful to listen to both of you and to understand more about the music industry and the and the problems that we're facing, but also what we can do to achieve it. I'm coming out really positive. I think there is a lot we can do, isn't there? And I think it's happening as well by the sounds of it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And that's it for this episode of Sustainability Solved, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Thank you to my guests, Lewis Jamieson and Hannah Cox. I'm Will Richardson from Sustainability Solved. For more information on Sustainability Solved and everything we've discussed today, please check the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, you can get in contact with us at Green Element on social media. And don't forget to follow this podcast in your favourite app and write us a review. Thanks a lot and see you next month.